Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's so great to be back here with all of you. Joining me in just a moment, my guest this week will be Maury Teherapur. And Maury is a global negotiation expert, and she's also a faculty member at the Warden School of Business um, at the University of Pennsylvania here in, in Philadelphia. Um, as always, stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our watch team of corporate partners, bringing you all kinds of interesting information from their industries. And for all things Women to Watch, you can go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So now I'm thrilled and honored to welcome to the show, Maury Teherapur. Hi. Hi, Maury. Hi, so happy to see you. So happy to be here. Terrific. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule for you. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. Um, as always on this show, we start at the very beginning, and um, I wonder if you could just tell our viewers a little bit about the community you were born in, in Iran. Yes, I was, you know, quite young. Um, we, I was living in Iran. Actually, we came back and forth to the States because my older brother and sister had come over to the United States for their education, so high school, college. And um, my mom and I would often visit. And so um, at the basically at the brink of the revolution in 78, 79, um, my parents decided that it was not the place for me to, to really get my education and, and sort of grow in a safe environment, safe community. Um, everything had changed. You know, there was a revolution, a coup d'etat, basically, and, and all had changed. So we moved to the United States, um, my mom and I, um, and joined sort of my sister and my brother. Um, and I have very fond memories, actually, of Iran um, as a little girl. I, you know, it was it was great. We had so many relatives and family. You know, the Iranian culture is is very welcoming, um, very hospitable. There's family is more important than anything. So all I have are those memories of growing up in a very loving and and very um, strong sort of community of family. So when we left, um, my mom and I, and then joined by our fa- my father. Um, sort of felt like a big separation in a lot of ways. Um, and um, joining my sister and my brother was great. Um, but again, there, was, there wasn't this whole sort of community behind us. Um, we moved to Lowell, Massachusetts first, then to Brookline, Massachusetts. And I'm actually really grateful for that. It was a very, it felt like a very safe place. Um, there was a lot of actually um, diversity um, in the community itself. There was actually other Iranians that lived there. And it was 
it just felt like the right community to be in. Very strong school system. Um, and more importantly, this incredibly strong um, sports culture, which is probably the beginning of my love for sports. But it was a community. Um, and felt like just, I'm, I'm grateful that that's where we ended up. My sister went to Boston University, so that's how we ended up there. But okay. it was a different community, but it was a community nonetheless. So what do you, when you think back, what was the, maybe, maybe you weren't afraid or scared, but what was, you know, what was the thing that you look back on and think this was the hardest part of doing that starting over in a completely different country? Well, it was also um, right at the sort of the front end of the hostage crisis. And so coming to the U.S. during that time um, and growing up in that culture of, I probably, a very similar experience sort of in more recent memory is like 9-11. And in a lot of ways there was, um, it didn't feel that welcoming at first for Iranians um, because there was really this um, notion of they're the enemy. They, they took our, our people, right? That during the hostage crisis, there was, um, there was that kind of sort of headbutting and it didn't, my mom especially um, was very um, sort of guarded in some ways about me going to school and um, being Iranian and being safe during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember this notion of it's probably not a good thing to tell people um, that I'm Iranian. Wow, that's hard. It is because then you're like, and so who am I? Right. And um, and that was that was probably the most difficult thing. It's sort of hard to not claim your culture mm-hmm. and then integrate into this other culture that at that time wasn't even all that different. Because, again, I had visited the U.S. so many times. I actually my English was better than my Farsi um, because I was going to international school in Iran. But it still feels like the pride that one has for their nationality. Just you couldn't really sit in that. Um and so that was really difficult. I think just trying to find my place and figuring out who I am um, yeah. as, a, as a pretty young girl. Yeah. How old were you when you came? Um, I think I was about seven or eight years old at that time. Okay. And I think, you know, secrets can create anxiety, particularly for children. Um, if, if the parents aren't speaking openly and saying, here's, here's what's happening. This is what's going on. So um, did I, I would imagine your getting involved in sports helped with that. It did. So I didn't play myself, but I was a little bit of a tomboy anyway. But there was um, there was this really kind of that was the day and age where you could actually send your kids out and not be so worried. It was a really pretty tight knit community, so you could stay out till dark and feel really safe. And my mom could look out of the balcony and see us playing in the playground. But um, so in that sense, you know playing outside was the thing that people did. It was still not sort of this um, get on your phones and computers and your um, iPads and play games as a kid. This was your whole life was outside. Um, And so, uh, and we played, right? So sports can be interpreted in a variety of different ways, but it was running and all these things, right? So that was the one thing. And then Boston itself is the sports culture in Boston is unbelievable, right? So um, it's hard to live there and Hopefully not be baseball. <laughs> well, funny thing is we also lived um, just a few blocks from Fenway. So you could actually oh, sit wow. the balcony and look over. And I was like mesmerized by the lights that would go on. Yeah. Um, you know, it was sports in some ways. Um, and even sort of watching it on TV, the Boston Celtics. I mean, it 
felt like a respite. Um, it was sports was its own community. Um, fandom was its own community and um, it brought people together. So coming from a place where things were, were basically pulled apart, right? Um, there was infactions of people. Here was a really strong community of people that despite all the differences and the, the again, the diversity, everybody sort of came together to support these teams. Yes. Um, so it felt like sports was really that it was, it was sort of magical in a lot of ways. It's just a wonderful distraction from the, the seriousness of the day to day. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so what were you, when you were young, what were you aspiring to be? What did you say? This is what I want to be when I grow up. Because I'm, I have a feeling it wasn't a negotiation expert. <laughs> it was not, and even in my adult years, it was not. Um, but uh, my my aspirations, I, I didn't feel like I was free to discover. Um, I was told that I should be a doctor from oh, wow. a very very young age. Um, so that's all my dad wanted. My sister didn't pursue it. My brother didn't pursue it. I was like the last hope. So, um, I grew up knowing that that's the path I was supposed to take. And so there wasn't a whole lot of imagination that I had doing anything else. I remembered I love fashion. Um, I love sports. I loved a lot of different things, but that love did not translate into something that I could realistically pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that came, that became my whole you know, sort of high school and college career, basically. Like I went through that part of my life thinking this is what I'm supposed to do um, without a whole lot of regard to, but what is it that you really want to do, Maury? Mm. That's very, com- I would say that's more common. I don't, I think to, oh, yeah. to the world where there's so much more acceptance and conversation around Absolutely. what are you here meant to do as opposed Correct. to here's the career that'll pay the bills. Yeah. There wasn't this whole, like, what is your purpose in life? It was right, my no. purpose in life was to pursue somebody else's purpose in life, basically. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's absolutely true. It's almost every immigrant story. Um, the doctor, the engineer, the lawyer, that kind of thing. And so um, mine is really not that different, but you still as a child think they've left everything behind for me. So this is the least I could do is really to pursue their dreams for me. Mm. How did you do academically? Was, you know, was school, um, did it come easy for you or did you have to work really, really hard to get, you know, that A? At a, at a pretty young age. So like elementary school, I remember um, was was actually not very hard for me, even though the school system was pretty rigorous. Um, the whatever schooling I had in Iran um, had pretty well prepared me, um, and that's a very rigorous education system. So um, I didn't feel, you know, one there was no language issue because again I was I was pretty fluent in English, so um, that was an issue. And I think even the coursework at that age was not hard for me at all. Um, we moved to New Jersey after that. And um, I went to public school for a year. That was not hard at all for me. Um, and I wanted more. Um, I felt like there there should be something that's challenging me more. So I ended up going to a private school. And I'm like, oh, okay, so this is hard. Um, so it became, you know, it was both exciting in a lot of ways because it was finally sort of capturing my attention. Um, it was a great another great community where I still have some of my um, best friends from life um, from that age, uh, but I was I was working pretty pretty darn hard. And then there was the whole college application process, which 
I didn't really have anybody to help me with, certainly not my parents. So that felt like um, a task that I took on very independently. Um, and that was pretty rigorous. So, you know, it became harder and harder. And then once I went to college uh, and had to sort of take all the coursework that was required for pre-med students, I was like, oh my God, this is, I was like, a, you know, like I was just lost. I was in a lot of those classes. I knew that I had to get the better grades because it was such a competitive area to be in. But it, none of it came easy to me. None of it came easy. And so it was it was like swimming upstream for about four years, actually. Yeah, yeah that's so hard. Uh, I mean, anything related to science, <laughs> over my head, for sure. Um, so tell me about what, what was your first job out of school? Um, so I took a lot. Of, I paid for college. So I had jobs from Oh, wow. young age, actually, from babysitting in, in high school all the way, I mean, and, and before even high school, in elementary school, actually, in Boston, all the way through high school and then college. Um, so, you know, things like everything from waitressing to whatever it was that I had to do. And then in school, so I waitressed and then in school um, and college, I also took a lot of jobs um, paid or unpaid, um, because I had to sort of work in labs and doctor's offices and really sort of prepare myself for, you know, what I thought was going to be a medical career. Mm-hmm. Um, and just before I, sort of my senior year in college, um, I worked, uh, for as an sort of internship at St. Luke's Roosevelt hospital in, in New York. And, um, the first opportunity there was in a sickle cell division and um, probably one of the first life-changing experiences um, in the sense that the, the population that was affected by this disease um, were sort of underserved, had little access, um, very painful disease. And for those that don't understand it, they really can't envision how hard this is to live with. And so the medications that's necessary to reduce the pain, I mean, it was all of that. I learned really quickly about sort of the haves and the have-nots in the healthcare system mm-hmm. um, and thought it was really sort of unjust. Um, and so you just working there and working with the people I worked with, you almost immediately became sort of their biggest advocate and fought for them in every way you could. And then the whole HIV epidemic hit. And so those people who were getting um, transfusions, um, blood transfusions were in the sickle cell unit that we were serving were also now at risk for HIV. And um, that was, you know, sort of like that double whammy. Um, And again, at that age, I don't want to say I was naive, but I thought the world could do better. I thought everybody could do better. Um, And so uh, my family had moved to California while I was in college and I was still in that place of, oh my God, um, you know, I still have to take the MCATs. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what I want to do. Um, and so I moved to California to join them because it was sort of like not having a firmly planted um, sort of plan at that point. So I went to California um, and decided that what I had just seen in New York was something that I didn't really want to let go of, that I wanted to still play that advocacy role and ended up in public health. and. Um, for several, several years, ended up working actually in HIV AIDS, um, particularly with hard hit populations and at risk populations and um, life changing. I mean, that was definitely probably the only way I can describe it. Um, I learned 
that it wasn't necessarily medicine that I wanted to pursue as a doctor on that very sort of micro level. But I love this notion of fighting for people and educating people who otherwise could go unserved um, and ended up working in public health and actually enjoying it, but also understanding that uh, medical school was not, not in the cards for me. But that was okay, right? So you discovered this other area within the healthcare system that you could have impact and make a difference. Absolutely. And you know, it's, you hear this all the time. You ask kids what they want to do. Oh, I want to change the world. Oh, I want to affect wants to change people's lives. It's not that easy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but I wanted, I wanted some impact. I wanted to make an impact in one way or another. And I, that became sort of the thing. And, and even looking at my career now, it's the thing that is very attractive to me because I feel like there's a responsibility that we all have. Um, and in whatever form that comes. Um, so you're absolutely right. It was, it was exciting, but part of the reason why it was exciting was it was also hard. Um, and you felt your purpose, my purpose at that time was, again, we can do better as a society. We should do better as a society. We should provide access to people. Um, and that became, I became very quite passionate about that. And actually in my book, you know, there's several stories about this one in particular, but, um, I've learned something from every chapter and, and that chapter taught me that it wasn't, I didn't have to be a doctor to do what I wanted to do. There was actually greater impact that I could have um, being in this sort of area of public health, particularly in HIV AIDS. And then I actually ended up starting my own company around um, sort of education and prevention campaigns for hard, hard to re um, reach populations. And, and um, that was, it, you know, just talking to you right now, um, how you become more clear about the direction that you want to go, even though it's not an exact thing, but you learn at every step. And it became clearer and clearer to me that, again, my place in the world should be someplace where I, I can have impact, that I can, I can change people's lives or affect people's lives. And whether that's, you know, a hundred people or whatever it was, but that's, that was, that felt like my calling. That was where you kind of felt joy. Right when you're doing that, do you think, do you see that is more common with women? So, in other words, they they come into a situation and they see something that is so blatantly and clearly wrong. Um, I kind of believe this, and and we just want to fix it. It's not a you know a question. It's just okay. How can we fix this problem? Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would just make it a gender thing. I think part of our gender role is that we are caregivers, that we are people that through sort of empathy and, and compassion, mm -hmm. um, we want to effectuate people's lives, especially those people that we care deeply about. Um, so yes, in that way, absolutely. Um, because we, I think from a very young age, we take on that role, um, sort of the selfless, um, let me fix it. Let me risk whatever I need to risk to fix other people's lives. And it's your kids, it's whatever it is, but I don't want to leave sort of men out of that equation either. I think a lot of it has to do with culture. I think a lot of it has to do with passion. I think a lot of it has to do really with the way you see the world. Um, and so if you think about, you know, is this only women, I would say, I don't, I don't know. I think that I would say it's, how people feel, where people feel like their places in the world and yeah. what they can do with that, right? I work with professional athletes. A lot of them go back to their communities and want to invest in their communities. I've, I've, you know, worked with, you know, obviously um, uh, men and women from sort of all professional ranks all the way down to my Wharton students. 
And when they have a calling, it, gender is not really the thing. It's just their passion that, that sort of drives and their purpose in the world that drives them. Which is a good thing. It, which is a good thing. Know, which is a really good thing. You don't want to have the population wanting to just help people. So. <laughs> um, I would say we probably, and you're 100% right, we probably come at it from different angles right. and from different ways. And I know that you talk about um, something I want to talk to you specifically about is kind of, you know, this, this idea around emotional quotient, EQ versus IQ. Um, I think there's a... I, I am so thrilled that the world has discovered that there is another form of intelligence um, and how important that is, I would say, particularly with negotiation, that which is just um, people talking and trying to come to a place of agreement or um, compromise. I watched your um, podcast with Glennon Doyle. Um, she's just Amazing. An amazing person. Her her first book changed my life, truly. Love Warrior. I love that yeah. book. Um, and she was talking about how it should never be a battle. It shouldn't be a fight when you're negotiating with someone. It should be coming to a, a, a third solution, I, I believe she said. Tell me about that and, you know, what that means and, of course, what she meant by that. I think what she meant and, you know, just – an aside, that was an unbelievable conversation because it felt so safe. It felt like we were um, sort of around the kitchen table and having this conversation. So I think sort of definitely my guard was down. I mean, it felt really comfortable and sort of free flowing because I think I was even figuring out things as we were talking. And um, in the course of that conversation, it became sort of this notion of, first of all, a lot of myth busting around negotiations. And mm -hmm. it's not supposed to be headbutting. It's not supposed to be contentious. In fact, the best negotiations are that which allows room for both sides to feel like they're walking away with something that's important to them. Um, and so when you start thinking about it that way, you put on more of a problem solving hat as opposed to this, who's gonna win this battle hat. And when it becomes problem solving, it leaves room for people, right? You, there, there's always enough room actually for people if we think about it, right? There's, this world of ours is not scarce. We just, some of us made, make it seem that way, but there's great abundance for, for people, whether it's money, whether it's resources. Um, you just have to be your own best advocate in a lot of ways. Um, it's sort of this notion of deservedness um, and then go in with this problem solving hat that doesn't leave you out of the equation either, but really makes room for both sides. And um, I think through the course of that conversation, it became very clear and the gender dynamic also became very clear in that sense, because sort of going back to the earlier question, it's not that, you know, men don't want to help. It's just, I think we come, a, come to problem solving in very different ways. Yeah. Um, one sort of wants to, both sides want to fix things. I think women have um, more of that sort of empathetic, um, sort of a collaborative mindset around these things. There's a certain elegance about us um, in the way we do it. And it's, it's quite nuanced actually, but um, it really shows up actually in things like negotiations because we do put on our, our sort of gender role hat um, and whether we're allowed or not allowed to advocate for ourselves and what that means and how will people judge us for it. Um, and because we're so, like that takes up so much of the space of our thinking, we don't allow ourselves to be more strategic, to be more thoughtful sometimes about what we want 
Um, but instead it's sort of how will you be judged? Um, and when that takes up all of your energy, it becomes really hard to think about sort of collaborative problem solving because you sort of leave yourself out. And I don't think that's true of men. Um, I think that's definitely more of a sort of a gender role that we take on and, and societal um, sort of norms that play in our minds constantly. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating um, to me. And I have many more questions for you on it. We're going to go into our first break. Um, and when we come back, I want to talk about, first I want to know, when did you have this epiphany about, you know, really what it, what, your expertise in negotiating. Um, how did you discover that? And we'll talk a little bit about EQ. Stay with us and we'll be back with Maury Teherapur um, and stay with us for our watch team. We'll be right back. to the show. I'm joined this week by Maury Taharapur. And uh, Maury is a faculty member at the um, Wharton School of Business at the University of Penn and also a global negotiation expert. Um, so yeah, my first question, when did, you, when did you realize that this was a specialty and you were going to do something with it? I can't say I realized. Um, because somebody told me that this is maybe what I should consider doing and teaching was the thing. I was um, getting ready to graduate business school and actually the person was my negotiations professor. I'm still thinking like, what do I do? I, I had a company at the time, do I go back and continue to do that? You know, you sort of have been so um, intellectually stimulated for two years that it doesn't feel like you could just go back to life as it was. Like there's something else that feels like you should be doing. Um, and so while I was trying to figure that out, um, my professor at the time said, hey, maybe you should consider teaching. Um, I thought he was nuts, to be honest. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an introvert by nature. The, the thought of even standing in front of a classroom put the fear of God in me. And I was like, why would you ever even think that this is something I could do? And he's like, you know, I saw you in class. I saw how you sort of um, so enjoyed um being in that class and the way you took things on, you know, we do a lot of role play and wh whatnot. And he said, I just think that there's something you, you can do. Uh, so that's how it all started. It was sort of the seed. Um, and I'm still not convinced. Um, and Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app, get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine 49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And um, I actually became his teaching assistant. So he could, he said, just see it from the other side. Oh, that's a great and, idea. Yeah. And it was sort of, I would say, love at first sight in a lot of ways. Um, it was felt very different from the other side. Again, you felt like you were helping, which now has sort of becomes this continuation of the theme for me. Um, and you take on a different kind of responsibility. This is not about yourself anymore. This is about 
kind of community in your classroom. Um, and I, I started teaching sort of immediately after that. Uh, that was 2004. Uh, more than 18 years later, just about, here I am. Wow. I'm doing something I never, ever imagined. Um, and why negotiations? I, I, again, he thought it was something that was sort of appealing to me in a very different way. And, and I was an entrepreneur at the time. I, you know, had sort of all these experiences that when I felt like I could allow myself to bring that into a classroom, it took a few years um, for my, for me to give myself permission to be exactly who I wanted to be in the classroom and to feel comfortable. And, um, you know, you feel very pressured. You feel like these people's lives are in my hands. Um, and, you know, you are sort of the, the leader in a lot of ways and how they're going to see this subject or how they're going to see themselves um, sort of uh, take part in what I consider now to be maybe the most routine thing that we do in our lives, like every single day. Um, but after a few years, uh, it took about three years. Uh, and I was like, I wasn't quite enjoying it as much because I felt sort of reined in by my own self, by the way. And when I, kind of pretending to be a figure that you thought you should be. As a, exactly. As a uh, sticking to the syllabus exactly as it was. Yeah. Very yeah. like not stepping outside of the lines and I don't want to make mistakes. And finally, I was like, either you're going to enjoy this or this isn't really meant for you. Mm-hmm. And I sort of gave myself permission um, to do it the way I wanted to do it. And um, I haven't looked back since. It felt, you know, the classroom became a very different place to me. It came place. I teach the course very differently. I do a lot of sort of mindset work and um, self-reflection work. uh, And I come at negotiations that are very sort of more of a psychology of negotiations than anything else. And once I did that, um, it just felt not only right, but it felt like finally I was seeing my purpose, like that whole notion again of helping, but doing it in a way that felt most comfortable to me. And I became more confident and I fell in love, to be honest with you. This is now sort of a true passion for me. And the more I leaned into my passion, the better I became at teaching. So, um, you know, here I am. I, so I, I didn't think, you know, all through my life or adult life, I should teach negotiations. It was sort of that door was open for me. Um, the opportunity was given to me. And when I said, okay, why not? Um, it all sort of fell into place. So here's what I want a question I want to ask. It's such an important topic, the topic of going out to the world and allowing ourselves to be truly who we are. I don't know why it's so hard for human beings to do that, but there's manuals everywhere that say this is how it should be done. And um, I, I've learned so much, you know, from doing the show over these years. And and for me, the self-reflection came first because I deeply wanted to be better, right, mm-hmm. and feel comfortable in my own skin. And then all of the, you know, I just was so learning constantly all the time within interactions. And sometimes people will learn, perhaps, you know, this uh, professor said to you, maybe you should be a teacher, and then you start to Mm self-reflect. Which was it first for you? Were you always kind of battling, you know, going out to the world as your full self, who you are? And Absolutely. Um, I think that, again, growing up, in a very different culture and being told that this is what you should pursue as a, your career. Yeah. 
you sort of aren't walking in your authenticity that entire time because you're not almost allowed either by other people or yourself to imagine that, to, to feel like that's the right thing to do. You sort of disallow yourself. And um, I think that when this sort of, and again, the, the reins became looser just because finally when I had the, the sort of the courage to say, I don't want to be a doctor, that became almost the beginning of my journey because then it was like, okay, now what? Um, and that sort of takes some ref- self-reflection and courage, quite frankly, um, to yes. say, I don't know what it is, but I want to, I want to find something that I'm passionate about. Um, because if not that, then what? Right. So, um, and when I started teaching, I think the more I reflected on just even my whole life up until that point where I was very guarded, um, you know, again, the cultural extremes, right. That you, you had to find your place between these two, two cultures and feeling like the sort of traditional culture of my family, the, the American culture, the more sort of freeing culture, um, that was what I grew up with. And I don't quite frankly think I was ever really myself, um, you know, all the time um, at home or at school because you still carry this other part of you with you. Yeah. Um, and when I started to even loosen those reins, when I thought I, you sort of can't breathe fully that way, and the more you become yourself, the more it's almost like oxygen that you get. Um, yes. And yeah. yeah, and and to be honest with you, the one place that I am most myself, I think, when I'm most authentic, um, because I've allowed myself to be, is in a classroom. It's wow. where I feel most safe. It's where I feel not judged. Um, it's where we all become really sort of emotionally tied to the classroom and the experience that we're all sharing. And um, I sort of let go. And I think that's sort of the magic of my classroom because it's, it's safe. It's, we're vulnerable. We're sort of taking this journey together. And I know to your listeners, this is like, wait, doesn't she teach negotiations? Yes. But we come at it at this place of um, we have to always learn. We have to always be open. We have to always feel like as confident as we are, we have the humility to know you don't know everything and you can't lead with certainty that, that leading with sort of this very um, curious mindset just continues to make you better and better and better. And I think I come to that, the courage that I have to be myself, I've come to probably um, in the classroom more than anything else. Do you talk to your kids the way you and I are talking about this and how important it is for them in life? I do. As a part of, yeah, as a part of teaching the course? Mm-hmm. Adult, yeah. everybody. I mean, that's sort of the scene setting at the beginning of the class. And whether it's executives I'm working with, entrepreneurs, or my students at Wharton, it's all the same. It's like the purpose of the classroom, these next four hours or next semester that we have with each other is going to be probably different than anything you really had perceived this experience to, to be before you walk through those doors. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if you can't learn to be exactly who you are again with courage and purpose and allow yourself to advocate for yourself and to understand your own value, then how on earth will you ever be not just a great negotiator, but find happiness and fulfillment because you're putting yourself 
um, sort of behind everybody else, right? You're not allowing yourself to be as deserving as opportunities are given as, as whether you're a mom, whether you're a student, whether you're seeking a new job or you're an executive, you matter, we matter. Um, and I think that, that when they get that, like this notion of, okay, this is going to be taught to us in a very different way, but people also, I have the privilege of having these, these folks that listen and become really anchored almost immediately and the classroom becomes sort of our safe haven. Mm. I would, as I'm listening to you talking, I'm thinking these kids probably are thinking, I can't wait to get back to that class and learn more. This is so interesting. And, and what's fascinating is, and I'd love for you to talk about how it ties into negotiating, but the power I think for all of us is in our originality. And we live in a society that tells us, this is how you do it. You know, here's the ABCs, um, how to look, how to speak, how to start a business. And we we're always moving away from the original piece of who we are, which is where the wow comes from. Um, So why is that important in negotiating? So for example, which is something we can talk about negotiating at high levels in a business, you know, two major corporations that are looking to merge um, or negotiating with a family member. Why is it so important that when we're doing that, we're bringing, you know, we're just speaking as who we are. How does that affect the outcome? A couple of ways. I think whether you're a big corporation or whether, again, you're negotiating with family members, you almost have to always understand your why right? What's driving you to this conversation? What is it that you really want to get out of this conversation? What's most important to you? And I don't think you come to that without truly doing some self-reflection or even as a company or whatever it is to understand why these decisions are being made because people get behind it better when they understand the why. Um, And so I think that's, that's the first piece of this. The other is that Again, there's many opinions about this, so I don't want anybody to think like this is the be-all and end-all. I always encourage my students and everybody else to read other books around negotiations and understand how this is taught by different professors and academics because you have to find a way that's most authentic and genuine to you. But as far as I'm concerned, we perform best when we don't feel like we have to follow a particular formula. Um, We perform best when we understand our own values where we can abide by and honor our values um, and that you're not trying to memorize things when you're having this conversation, that you feel quite confident having prepared, obviously, but also speaking your voice, um, knowing that you don't have to pretend to be somebody else. You don't have to fear what you're wearing or how you're conducting yourself, because if you put all of your energy behind the pretense, right, who you're supposed to be, then who you are um, is sidelined. And I think when we are, we are sort of under duress or if the conversation becomes really sort of anxiety ridden, we find our best way forward when we can speak our own voice, not, Oh, what did I read on page 148 of that book? How am I supposed to behave now? Our gut instincts are pretty strong and the older we get, the more we trust ourselves. I think the better we are at navigating those situations. So being your authentic self sort of ends up saving the day because it's your best, it's the, it's the best way to navigate this road. And whether it's contentious, whether it's, it's really collaborative, who are you and what is it that you want? Um, and, and be yourself. 
Um, I wanted to ask you this question. If you're in a situation where you are, go, you know, you're negotiating um, for something and you don't necessarily have certain facts and figures, but mm-hmm. you know intuitively that this is the right thing, I guess, what kind of language can we use um, other than, you know, I don't know that, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you because I think often our intuition is, is, is the truth. And yet we might not have certain facts and figures that someone is asking for. Right. Um, so I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm sort of going against what I just said. Our intuition can be the truth, but we also all have biases and prejudice and and stereotypes that we carry around with us. So um, we want to make sure that as we're making these decisions and coming into these conversations, that we're not just coming at it from a place of instinct, but also marrying that to information and data and, and really understanding what it is that you're doing and why it is that you're doing that. Right. So, um, sometimes we don't know everything, but that's why I always say like, keep an open mind because the person sitting across from you may actually know things that will be of benefit to you. And you have to allow yourself again, to continue learning through this process. And if you come to a point where something is being offered and you don't know the information, like you said, or the complete information, then I think it's always better to say, you know, I just need a little time to reflect on this. We want to go through some of this information um, and we will get back to you. Can we set up a time to come back to this again? So you're not saying I'm, I'm ignorant or unprepared. You're saying, I feel like that message is, I want to be more thoughtful. We want to be more thoughtful. And this is more valuable to us than sort of shooting from the hip. So let's take that time to reflect. Thank you for this information that you've given us. Um, there's a lot to think about. Um, we want to come back. Yeah. Um, real quick, because we're running out of time, but I wanted to talk about your book and and what the readers will find um, in it and, and why you decided to write it. It's a big task. It is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you didn't God. want to write the book, if I read correctly. You were no, not, I did not. I, not well, wanting I, to write this book. <laughs> I did not fancy myself to be an author. Um, and, and thank God I was never under this illusion that this is going to be an easy thing. Cause it's not an easy thing at all. Um, but, um, it was very therapeutic in a lot of ways. Um, it was quite cathartic. Um, and, uh, what the book is, is really sort of a reflection of what I do in a classroom, um, which is again, this notion of the first the first step is to better understand yourself and your own value. Um, and then to bust a lot of myths around negotiations. Like this isn't something that is only transactional. This is in fact something you do all the time. Um, that, that, you know, a lot of these notions that we have about negotiations are really the things that hold us back. Um, that, that learning to tell our story better is what's important. That, um, that this becomes really a, a, a sort of a, conversation around relationships and connections as opposed to one person versus another and allowing people to feel like they should be their authentic self. Again, this is, this is, could be a little controversial around negotiations because you're like, well, you know, I've been told not to be emotional or not to show my true colors or to talk less. Um, I sort of go against the grain in a lot of 
those ways. Um, and I wanted my book to be accessible. So it comes from a form of stories and it feels like a autobiography in a lot of ways, but there's also stories of, of what happens in my classroom or life experiences that I've had or seen my students have, because I feel like stories make it widely acceptable and seen and it doesn't feel too academic. It doesn't feel like something that people have to reach for and may not get there. It says that everybody has their own story. Just learn how to tell it and come at it from a place where you value yourself first. Um, and, and that's what I wanted the book to do is, you know, I love the subject. I do. And I feel like everybody needs to learn how to do it better because it's so much a part of our life. Mm. And that's how I wrote the book. And that's what the book really is. It's, 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 um, it's storytelling. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to ask you, I'm just so curious. When, first of all, do you find yourself now in your life where you are fully going out into the world as yourself every day? And if, if not, are there still, because I think things, there's triggers, there's things that pull us back to perhaps that little girl that wasn't quite sure. What do you say to yourself in those moments to kind of bring you back to more? Um, you know, I think how we grow up and what we're told as kids really matters. Words matter as you're sort of being raised in a household um, and who you're around. And I think that, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like I've disappointed people because I didn't become what they had imagined of me to become. You know, that didn't fulfill that promise of a career in medicine or whatever it is. And though that may seem silly to some people, it's sort of firmly embedded in my mind. Um, and this notion of, well, if I don't succeed, it's, you know, will they say, I we told you so. And that's never really happened. But it's still sort of in your head. Um, yeah. So failure is not an option. Um, and the other part of that is that it affects the way you see yourself. And so imposter syndrome or whatever people want to call it is very, very real. Mm -hmm. And though I am feeling more confident by the day because the more I lean into who I am um, and, and allowing myself to sort of follow what is, what is my purpose? What, what I'm so joyful about doing, um, the more it's, again, it's like being able to breathe more comfortably, right. And standing in your own power and how that's not a bad thing, but it's, it's absolutely something you should allow yourself to do and not at the risk of other people, but really at the benefit of yourself, because when you're better, you can do better. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that while there's that constant push pull, um, and it happens, I'll tell you a good example. When I'm being introduced and I hear all these, you know, things being said about me, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, is that me? I mean, you still sort of, <laughs> it's sort of still hard to kind of accept because that's not the language that I use to describe myself a lot of times. And, mm. and to hear it and make peace with that and say, well, it is, you've accomplished these you things. those things, that's right. Yeah. That's, that ownership um, mm. becomes more, easily once to you, once you can, um, look in that mirror and say, you have done this, you have accomplished this. Um, and, and the, the better I get at doing that, I feel like the better I am in a classroom, in business in in my family. And so, um, I think that, that, that for people that think, well, 
I can't see myself that way. You can, it's just a lot of work and it's letting go of a lot of the scars or making peace with your pieces and, and dealing with those sort of demons, um, and, and doing that sort of emotional hygiene. And once you do, you know, I feel like there's joy in that. There's purpose in that. There's peace in that. There's breathing better. I love when you said that. I thought, gosh, that is so true. When you're, when you have peace of mind, you're breathing beautifully. When you're tense for whatever reason, you know, you're holding your breath. That's not good. No, it's like wearing something that you feel really comfortable wearing or wearing something that you don't feel so comfortable wearing. It's like there's, you you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, the coat that doesn't fit. I thought that's such a great example. You're trying to be someone you're not. You're wearing a coat that doesn't fit. That's a great <laughs> analogy because you can feel that physically. Yeah. Um, I, I wish we had more time. Um, I, I'm really appreciative of your, your coming on the show and talking so candidly about your work and your life. Um, and I wish you continued success. Thank you. It takes a good interviewer to be able to do that. So thank you for for sort of allowing the conversation to go where it did. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Um, Stay with us for our watch team and I'll be right back. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between. For 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start. Supporting families as they grow and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank. Here we are, and here we grow. Welcome back. Thank you so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. Stay tuned for my interview next week with Daria Burke. Daria is um, a global business advisor. She is a speaker and an author, and I'm very much looking forward to having her on the show. Um, As always, thank you to our sponsors, our watch team of corporate partners, and to Helm Creative for producing the show. Have a great week, everyone. We are CHOP, and we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center, 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first-of-its-kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center. We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. 
In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries. challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.